and just the anxiety and the pacing back and forth, not comfortable in my own skin. Finally, the guy shows up and I'm just so happy and relieved that he's there. And then he leaves. My guest today is Brandon Densmore. Thanks for coming on the show, Brandon. It's great to have you here. Yes, my pleasure. I definitely will want to get into your near-death experience for sure, because it sounds fascinating to me. But I would like to get an understanding of a little bit about your background and what your life was like before that occurred, just to give us some context for how you ended up where you were. Okay, let's see. I had a pretty pretty rough life, I guess you could say. I was sexually molested when I was eight years old. Oh. And uh, that hurt quite a bit. Affected my self-esteem, my, my self-image, confidence, and created a lot of harsh feelings. So anyways, that happened when I was eight. And at age 14, I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease and sacroiliac spondylitis. So I was in a- so Can you explain what they are, Crohn's disease? I've heard of them before, but I'm just not sure what they are and other people that watch them might not know either. Sure. So Crohn's disease is arthritis of the intestine. Oh. Is the easy okay. way to explain it. it sounds, and sounds then sacroiliac spondylitis is arthritis of the spine. Right. So obviously like it caused a lot of pain and I was put on opiate medications when I was 14 to help cope with Whoa. the pain and ended up getting dependent on those medications, dropped out in the ninth grade from school. So you and, would have been uh, around 14, 15 at that time as well. Geez, yeah, 15, 15, 16. Okay. Around that age. I hated school. Like the whole, the pressure to fit in, to conform. And I was bullied horrendously. I was raised in an alternate religion. So the practices in that religion made me stand out as different. So yeah. I guess maybe that made me an easy target. Or maybe it was my self-esteem issues from when I was sexually molested that weren't resolved that yeah, okay. kind of opened me up to attack. Yeah. Did you have many friends at school or any close friends at school? I made some friends, but I hung out with the wrong crowd. I desperately wanted acceptance, desperately wanted friends, people to like me, people to share my life with, and wasn't accepted by the normal crowd because I was so different, but ended up hanging out with the wrong crowd, which kind of got me into more trouble. But yeah. We got to the part where you're talking about your time at school and I distracted them, but I can relate because I know what it feels like to be someone who's seen as different. I, mm. Where I grew up, I grew up right in the middle of the bush, in the middle of nowhere in Western Australia. Not that that was unusual in the country, but I was just an unusual kid, I think smarter than a lot of people were and the same, just desperately wanted to be friends with people and often accepted being treated in a way that was not great, just so that I could feel like I had people at least a little bit close. Yeah, it is tough. So started hanging out with the wrong crowd. I hated school, didn't really care for the teachers, felt I didn't think I was going to use the information I was learning and rebelled against it, dropped out in the ninth grade. And then worked a couple dead end jobs, again, dependent on that medication and ended up having my first NDE at age 21. 
Okay. 21. Yeah. All right. Uh, so this is between, so between 14 and 21. So that was, you dropped out of school and you just had a variety of jobs. And then we've got our first NDE. So yeah, tell us about that. Yeah. Had my first NDE at age 21. I was in a fist fight and the guy ended up being a third degree black belt, which I didn't know at the time. Whoa. So guy. anyways, he, we were in a fist fight and he kicked me in the head three times with steel toed boots on. And I went to the doctor the next day and he said that if there had been three more pounds of pressure behind that final kick, that his boot would have gone into my brain. So that NDE, what happened was it was a, just a total blackout, just complete absence of anything and everything, just total blackness. So you were still, you were conscious, but there was no input rather than you being unconscious. Is that what you yeah. mean? Yeah. And no time. Like it was just nothing. And it's hard to describe because how often do we really experience nothing? But there, there yeah. was an observer, so you right? Felt... How else can we even describe nothingness if we're not there to experience it? Yeah. Yeah. There has to be an observer. That's what you meant. Okay. I thought for a moment you felt like there was a person, something observing you, but you were the observer. Yeah. Nothing, nothing. But the thing that happened after that was that I had believed I was stupid. Going back to like when I was sexually molested, I had developed self-confidence, self-esteem issues. And then in school, I dropped out in the ninth grade. I was made fun of by kids in school. And somewhere along the line, I adopted this belief that I was stupid. Like I wasn't going to go anywhere in life. I wasn't intelligent. I was no good. Right? So when I was in that fist fight, I started asking questions like, what am I passionate about? Why am I even here? And what ended up happening was I went back to school to get a GED. It's a general equivalent, so, equivalency to like a high school diploma. Okay, good. Yeah, we call it a high school studio. Yeah. And when I went back, I discovered that I had a passion, like a deep passion for learning. Like I just, I loved learning new things and just the thrill of it, the feeling of it, of coming to a discovery. Like I just yeah. loved that. I went back, got my GED directly after this thing. I started reading everything I could about self-development, spirituality, that kind of thing. So did you read much while you were in school or this is something that came after you did your GED, you suddenly decided, okay, I'm going to read as much as I possibly can about everything. Yeah. I just started looking into stuff, listening to audiobooks, and it just, every book that I would listen to and every book that I would read, it was like, I wanted more and wow, I really enjoy this. Yeah. But it when, opens up a world, doesn't it? It, it does. Once I can relate around 19, 20, it's once you start reading books about self-development because you don't normally get taught this at school. It's not part of this, any school curriculum that I'm aware of. Yeah, and, that's uh, true. Yeah, it, suddenly you realize there's a lot more to life than what you realize that there was and you just want more. Yeah. And I believed I was stupid and, and went back, got my GED, then went to and enrolled in a community college and then so this got was, a how long did it take you to do your ged was that a couple of years to do that oh it was a few months really i think maybe oh, okay. six months right. yeah yep. i needed to go back and study up on all the material geometry algebra all that good stuff went back did that enrolled into a two-year college finished that 
and then wanted more. So I ended up applying to this summer program called Exploring Transfer. So it's a program that the community colleges here in the States, they have this program called Exploring Transfer, and they'll take a community college student and send them to Vassar College. Wow. So that's Yale's sister school. Yeah, I've heard of that. No, I don't live there. <laughs> yep. Yes. Yeah, it's quite famous. And uh, ended up going there for a summer, six weeks, and took two full courses over a six-week period. And then got a 4.0, a perfect grade point average, an A in both classes. Okay. Not bad for a high school dropout who's stupid. Yeah, that must have spurred you on. It did. And so I got this, got a 4.0 and then applied to Vassar to become a full-time student. It was my second choice next to Harvard, but Harvard wouldn't accept my application because I had a GED. They require a high school diploma. Wow. Okay. So went to Vassar for four years and got a bachelor's degree in philosophy. And, but what people didn't know is that this whole time I was still dependent on these opiates. Was it the dependency? Did you still have pain to deal with the, the Crohn's disease, et cetera? Is that the reason why? Yeah. On and off, it would come and go. I would have a flare and then be in really bad pain. But also I was taking this medication to cope with my feelings because I still had, uh, after that first near-death experience and over this time period of this educational journey, I still had these self-esteem issues. Yeah. Going back to childhood. Yeah. But so I would take this, way... these opiates and it would dull those, the inner dialogue, telling myself that I'm no good, stuff like that. Um, so it wasn't just about the physical pain. It was, gave you some relief from that emotional turmoil that you're putting yourself through whenever you start getting down on yourself. It just gave you relief from that. Exactly. Made me feel like yeah. I could concentrate on my work, like I could deal better in social situations. Yeah. Made me feel calm, made me feel good. So it and sounds like you were, you, despite being addicted, you were high functioning at that point in time. I was, yeah. Had to be. There was, Vassar wasn't easy. Hmm. I had to read a stack of books like this, write paper after paper. The whole time that I was on this educational journey, no one really knew. I hid it pretty well that I was dependent on these opiates. Not even close friends or family knew? Family knew, but there wasn't much they could do about it. Yeah. Did they try to intervene? They tried to. Yeah. But there wasn't much they could do about it. I had a legitimate reason. Yeah. I could just go to a doctor and they would write a prescription. But it was tough and I would take too much of the medication, more than's prescribed, and then I would run out. And it was just a vicious cycle of up and down. I'd run out of this medication. My anxiety would just go through the roof and the thoughts would come back. So you finish your course at Vasa. The addiction is an issue, but you felt like you had a handle on it at the time. Mm -hmm. There was starting to be these sort of bad periods and not so bad periods that was starting, the gap was starting to widen because you're running out of prescription medication. Mm -hmm. And I imagine that you're putting pressure on your caregivers to get more and they're not letting that happen. So that creates stress and yeah. So what came next? Yeah, exactly. And then after graduating from Vassar, 
I'm back in Maine, which is where I live. And I'm in my mom's apartment and I've used too much of my medication and I've been in withdrawals for three days. Whoa. I hear that's a seriously painful thing. It's like living hell, basically. My inner dialogue was so negative and all of the problems of my life were just shouting at the top of their lungs in my mind. The anxiety, like I said, is, was just through the roof. Like, is, and I'm in my mom's apartment. I'm waiting for this, for the guy to show up. At Vassar, by the way, I didn't mention this, but I was introduced to heroin. Okay. As an alternative when you couldn't get your prescription medication. Exactly. I was at a party yeah. one night in withdrawals because I had run out of the medication and they were do, just doing this stuff. Yeah. And I decided, hey, I'll try it. So I knew about it. And uh, so when I came back home. Starting to, you're taking more risks at that point because I guess you, you knew that there's a chance that what you're actually about to take isn't what you think it is because of the fact that it's the source is not from a pharmaceutical company. I guess that was in the back of your mind. But is it just a case of, okay, I need to do something about this now? Yeah, it wasn't really in my mind. Yeah. It was more almost I've read about it now and it's the survival mechanism. Yeah. Like you, with the, with this, um, addiction or dependency, whatever you want to call it, it's like it hits the limbic system. So it's like your brain thinks that you need this thing like oxygen. Yeah. I need this to survive. I can't continue without this thing. Yeah. It's pretty bad. It's pretty powerful. So I'm in my mom's apartment. I'm in withdrawals. I've been in withdrawals for three days. And I'm waiting for my guy to show up to bring me some stuff so I don't have to be suffering like that anymore. Yep. And I'm checking the clock. Is this guy ever going to come? And just the anxiety and the pacing back and forth, not comfortable in my own skin. Finally, the guy shows up and I'm just so happy and relieved that he's there. And then he leaves and I do some of the stuff and finally the nightmare's over. <laughs> Finally, my mind just calms down and it's You've just got, got relief, a sigh of relief and it feels good. And all of the negative thoughts just dissipate like smoke, just like steam coming, rolling off a, a warm lake, just gone. And then I feel good. And then all of a sudden <clears throat> I realize that I'm dying. So I ended up overdosing. When you say you realized that you were dying, what was happening? Something was happening physically at that point. Yeah, I was like lying on the couch in my mom's apartment and my breathing started to get real slow. And then everything started really quiet, quieting down. It was like I was just sinking. And then my breathing was slow. And I'm like, this isn't right. And then I'm out of my body, standing next to oh. myself. So standing like in the apartment, looking at your body, laying on the couch. Yep. Yeah. Standing right there, looking at myself, laying on the couch. And then I was contemplating and oddly enough, I didn't find it strange. It wasn't weird. Yeah. You weren't anxious or anything like that. You thought, oh, I'm just, I'm here looking at myself. Did you think to yourself, oh, I've just died. That's why I'm here. Or is it? Yeah. Prep? Yeah. Yep. 
I somehow realized that I had died. And the weird thing it was is that it wasn't strange, which I don't know why it wouldn't be, because you would think that it would be weird. So it felt, when you say it wasn't strange, like it just felt, you felt comfortable? Is that felt comfortable. Yep. Felt yeah. comfortable. It wasn't like odd, like an unusual event. For some reason, that kind of thinking never crossed my mind. I was just standing there looking at my dead body and contemplating the meaning of my life. As you would. When you just, when that's just a kid, what, yeah. what was going through your mind as you were contemplating the meaning of your life? Well, oh, that's like, it. Um, what was the point? What was the point of it all? I was raised in an alternative religion, you know, sexually molested when I was eight years old, made fun of when I was a kid, dropped out of school, went back to school, went on this amazing yeah. educational journey, discovered a passion for learning overcame the belief that I was stupid, but what was the point of it all? That's yeah, what I was. You were kicking some goals at this point and now it was like, it was almost all for nothing. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And I was baffled. Wasn't there something supposed to be something more to life? Yeah. And then so we're standing um, there looking at the couch, contemplating the worth of your life and what yeah. happened next. Yeah. And I became aware of a presence. There was a presence in the room. It didn't feel uncomfortable, but it wasn't like I had some kind of like profound peace or anything. It was just, I was standing there contemplating the meaning of my life and was baffled and confused and didn't see the point. And all of a sudden I just, I sense that something's in the room with me. You know how, like, sometimes you can feel somebody watching you? Yeah. Like, you just feel the eyes, like, watching you, even if you don't see somebody. But anyways, that's what it felt like. And I looked around, there was nothing there, but I definitely felt the presence. And uh, that's when I entered what you might call a holodeck. I like to think of it as a holodeck. So the apartment disappeared? Yep, it disappeared. And I was shown a future so just like reality. A, just a quick, it was there one second in the whole like a light switch. Yeah. Just yeah. boom, gone. I was shown two things. Like I was shown a future reality where I didn't exist. So you could think of it as, was I shown the future? I don't know. It might've been, or future. was it a simulation of a possible future? I don't know, because this brings up questions of causality and do we have free will and all this stuff? Those are some deep questions, but I was shown a future reality where I didn't exist. So you could say I was shown the future. So I was shown all the people that I would never meet, the experiences I would never have, the woman that I would never marry. And it was like, I would see a, like me, like a movie, watching a movie of myself, having all of these experiences. But it was like, after each one, it's like, okay, that's never, that will never happen. Right. Now shown another one, that will never happen. Shown another one, that will never happen. Shown another one, that will never happen. Over and over and over and over again. And then the other thing I was shown was all of the people that were affected by my death, all of the friends and the family and the memorial service, 
That's heavy. It is. And the one that really stands out from that part was that my mother coming into her apartment and discovering my dead body on her couch. And there was like pus running out of my mouth. And I remember her saying, my baby, my baby, no, God, no. Screaming, screaming. And that's when it, that's when it really hit me. And it was like a kick in the stomach. (laughs) And I started begging, send me back. I'll do whatever I have to do to overcome this addiction. Whatever is required of me, I will do it. So there was a steely resolve at that point. Yeah, because I couldn't let my mother experience that pain of finding her baby dead. Yeah, it almost seems like that, that people often have a, an experience that's tailored for them when they have a near-death experience. And that was the one that was tailored for you to make the biggest impact by the sense yeah. of it. Yeah. yeah. And I've told this story a few times and sometimes in the comments, people talk about how could God, I don't know if this was God, this presence, but the, okay. I left a part out. So I heard a voice. So after seeing my mother finding my dead body, I heard a voice and it was a very matter of fact voice. It wasn't a whisper. It wasn't a loud, booming, thunderous voice. It was just a very matter of fact voice that said, now your life is over and you wasted it. Whoa. That was really what finished me off. That was just like, I had already been kicked in the stomach with seeing my mother. Yeah. And then shown the future that never would happen. And then now your life is over and you wasted it. So I begged, send me back. I'll do anything that's required. But people say in the comments, when I tell this story, how could God say something like that? Or why would God say something like that? And I don't know if this presence was God, Jesus, Buddha, who it was and never identified itself. But how could a divine being of this kind say something like that? Now your life is over and you wasted it. So I get comments talking about that point. And, oh, it was your higher self. I don't know what it was, but it, like you said, Rod, it's like these experiences are tailored to what we need in that moment. I believe that I needed to hear that. You've constructed your life up to that point around an addiction. And from the outside, you look like you had it all together, but at some point it was going to come to an end badly. And you really needed a message that was going to get through to you. Anyway, sounds like it did. So what happened next? It definitely did. And I want to say that it was the love that really got me to the point where I was like, I will do anything to overcome this addiction. You felt this love from the presence or the voice. Is that what you mean? No, it was the love of my mother. Ah, The appreciation for her raising me, the love that she showed me. And here I was doing this heroin and I died and she found my body that the love and the respect that I had spurred on the change yeah, or the willingness to do whatever it takes. Yeah. You had to honor that. Could not honor that at that point. Yeah. So anyways, after that experience, right after that, I called crisis. So back up a little bit. So you said, okay, (laughs) I want to go back. And I guess you did. And you 
Boom. Yeah. Back in your yeah, body. I'll do whatever again. it takes. Send me back, please. God, just send me back. I want to live. I'll do whatever it takes to not make this happen. And all of a sudden, boom, I'm back in my body gasping for breath. Do you have any idea for how long that was? No. But after the experience, I called crisis and went into a seven-day detox where I had to learn how to tie my shoelaces again because the drug was not in my system. Yeah. And that's how dependent I was on this medication. I think I was 32 when this happened, and I'm 40 now, but I had been on this opiate medication since age 15. Yeah, yeah, so getting on 16, 17 years. So it yeah. was, my brain was just totally wrapped up in this thing. Yeah, so your brain's ability to produce those same chemicals, dopamine, etc., was pretty much non-existent. So you, oh, I can't even begin to imagine what that must have been like to go, okay, we're just cold turkey. And how do you, how did they treat you for that? How did that occur, that seven-day period? They, they gave me some, some medication for an anti-inflammatory, a sleeping pill. And <clears throat> I remember I'm not a doctor, so this is not medical advice. Yep. But I do talk about it. They offered me a medication called Suboxone. They call it an opiate replacement therapy. And from what I understand, this helps a lot of people. A lot of people who are addicted to heroin and other opiate substances, they prescribe this to them so that they can get off these other street drugs and other pharmaceuticals. But anyways, I was in the midst of the worst part of the withdrawal and the psychiatrist offered me Suboxone. And I said, I knew what it was. It's actually an opiate, an opioid. It's a synthetic. But anyways, I said, no. He said, that must you need to read. That, it was a debate in my mind. Do I take it? Do I not take it? Do I take it? Do I not take it? And I said, no, because I, I wanted to be free. Yeah. And didn't want to feed the dependency or come dependent on this opiate replacement therapy. He said, you need to reconsider, Brandon. You need to reconsider yeah, he, that. He didn't want you to fail based on the odds that he'd seen for people that had not taken you got the it. alternative. Yeah. Yes, exactly, Rod. He didn't want me to fall into the statistic. So he said, you need to reconsider. Do you realize that, I think he said 95%, might've been a higher percentage, but 95% of people in your situation will go back to the substance. Yeah. So you're really against the odds. And I said, I guess I'm one of the 5%. You, no, you, you were confident at that point that, that there was a moment, but you were really confident you were just going to have to do it that way, whatever it was going to take. Yeah. Yeah. And it goes back to like when I was pleading on the other side to live, send me back, I'll do whatever it takes. Like I couldn't accept the drug because I knew where it was going to lead. Yeah. And that's for me. Like, I'm not telling other people that's right for them necessarily, although it may be, but that would be something to seriously consider because I know people who are dependent on these opiate replacement therapies 
And I'm glad from my personal life, my personal experience, my personal life that I said no, because I'm, now I'm free. So it was just, you were in rehab for that seven day period. And then they kind of let you loose after that. What yeah. happened after that? Yeah. They cut me loose after that. And then I went to an intensive outpatient program. That's something that you just go to weekly as part of a group talking about addiction and how to recover and different things like that. And I learned some good stuff there, but where I really got some relief because after coming off this medication, I was still full of like resentment to people in the past, including the guy who molested me. But so also the physical withdrawal was one thing. The mental side of things was something else. Yeah. Yeah. And almost worse, really mental, emotional peace was worse than the physical. And even after the drug was gone out of my system, that emotional, mental aspect was just raw, full of resentments from the kids at school, from the guy who molested me toward the religion that I was raised in. All of these different aspects of resentment and fear and negative thinking about myself. Am I good enough? Comparing yeah. myself to other people, all this stuff. You had plenty of reasons to be bitter at the world. Yeah. Yeah. Any good reasons. Bitter. Yeah. Bitter yeah. and afraid. But you knew that was getting in the way of you being fulfilled in your life and you had to do something about it. Well, yeah. At that point, I was not happy. Like I was miserable and I knew that I needed to find a way to deal with this because if I didn't, I was going to probably end up going back out and using the substance again. I had a gaping void in my life and I needed to find a way to fill it and to deal with all of these emotions and inner turmoil that was going on. And that's when I started going to Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. Okay. My drug of choice wasn't really alcohol, but I lied. <laughs> I, I said that I had an alcohol problem. Did you have an idea? I, that, did you learn about the framework that's like with the 12 steps? You thought that's what I need. And so I need to get in there. No, I started going and what happened was I needed a support group, people to talk to. That's why I originally went. And I knew that I had all these emotional problems and self-esteem issues, et cetera. And I needed people to talk to about it. So anyways, I started going to these meetings and I saw that wow, there are people here with incredible substance abuse stories with alcohol and they're laughing. They're happy. They've made friends. They're talking with each other. They're laid back. They're comfortable. So that's when I realized, okay, there's something going on here. It was evidence to me that there was a solution to the inner turmoil and stuff that I had going on the inside. Yeah. This kind of clicked. It clicked and I found a sponsor and then worked through the 12 steps. So it was a gradual process, but let's see. So when I had that overdose experience, I had no friends, false friends, people who were there just to take advantage of me in my life. I went from no friends, no money in the bank, broken hearted no self-confidence, full of resentment, fear. Crappy life at that point. Yeah. I was low down, like low. 
in life and uh, no vehicle to now I'm married to a wonderful, beautiful woman. I had a son who's eight months old, who I love dearly. I have money in the bank. I started a business. I bought a car. I bought a house. I have a beautiful garden. I'm full of confidence, self-esteem. I love my life. I have real friends. And I'm living the kind of a reality that I was shown. Now, whether or not that was that future reality where I didn't exist was the actual future or not, I can't say. Yeah. But I'm living, living like I feel like I was supposed to live. The so light what strikes me, sorry, Brandon, it's interrupting. What strikes me is that there's this resolve about you and this, there's some confidence that can't quite put my finger on, but it's almost because you had those previous experiences that the person that you are now has so much more vigor and it's almost like a ruthlessness for life and it just comes out of you. You think that, is, is that how you feel? That's an awesome way of describing it like a ruthlessness for life. Yeah. Yeah. It, like you're not going to um, waste another was, second. Exactly. Yeah. When I was talking with my sponsor and going through the 12 steps, there was a point where I didn't want to be in any other relationship, like a romantic relationship. Cause I had so many failed romantic relationships from the past and a lot of resentment toward ex-girlfriends. And I told my sponsor, I don't want to get into another relationship because I'm afraid of being hurt. He said, that's no way to live. You, you don't want to be in a romantic relationship because you're afraid of being hurt. That's no way to live. That's a bit of tough love you, right there, isn't it? It is. Like, to, you need to be willing to be hurt to open up your heart. Be willing to be hurt to experience the fullness of life. Instead of living afraid and trying to protect, to live in a little box and protect myself from the world. But to have the fullness, the full experience of what life has to offer. So how did you, I don't know whether overcome is the right word, but there's the bitterness and the resentments for people that have wronged you in your life. And like I said, you had plenty of reasons to do that. How did you get to the point where you go, okay, did you just realize that was poisoning your life and you had to let them go? Is that what you got to? Yeah. I realized that, that these underlying things were really the cause, the root of the addiction, because I would take these medications in order to numb the feelings and to obliterate the thinking that was happening in my mind around some of these issues. So I needed to, I needed a solution to addiction, a solution where I no longer had to have this as a problem, where I could move on with my life and live a full life experiencing everything that life had to offer. But my life was on the line too. For me, it was a matter of life and death. So I desperately needed a solution. I found the right sponsor, someone who really knew their stuff, someone who really knew the material and the method from Alcoholics Anonymous, which I mean, Alcoholics Anonymous, it saved my life. Not to say that this organization doesn't have its problems, not to say that the philosophy doesn't have issues of Alcoholics mm. Anonymous, but it did save my life because it gave me that, it gave me what I needed in the moment. 
and it gave me a process that I could use to really face these inner demons that were driving the addiction. So how did you actually integrate some of those, those terrible experiences? I'm sure this is something where people are wondering who have been through a similar experience to go, I can't possibly forgive that person for what they did. How did you manage to integrate that into your life where you got to the point where it's not something that's a problem for you? Yeah. So I was coaching somebody about this the other day and forgiveness doesn't mean that you're opening yourself up to being abused. Like this idea of turn the other cheek so that the, when Jesus said that, it was like you get slapped and then you turn the other cheek. And it's a like biblical saying, so that in other words, slap me again. But that's not what forgiveness is. It's so true. If, yeah, if you're being abused, you don't want to allow yourself to continue to be abused, right? Oh, I'm in an abusive relationship and I'm going to forgive the person that's abusing me and just allow them to continue abusing you. That's not forgiveness. So first you have to be ready and willing and open. I had to practice forgiveness because my life was on the line and I couldn't allow myself to die and my mother to find that dead body. Yeah. So I had, I was motivated. I was motivated. So I would say the first thing you need to be motivated, but I had turned into an angry person and I didn't want to live that way anymore. On another show, I was talking with someone and he's, we were talking about road rage. Yeah. So someone would cut me off in traffic and I'd get ripped. Oh, that, what is this guy thinking? Flip them the finger. Yeah. That was what just a standard jerk. operating procedure. Right. But anger had become a lifestyle. Just irritated at little annoyances. But what I didn't realize is that I had become an angry person and that was a lifestyle and that the anger was coming out sideways. It was being expressed toward these little annoyances, but those little annoyances weren't really the problem because I had anger inside of me at a really fundamental level. Problem. Being sexually molested at eight years old is enough to make you angry, mm -hmm. but it was coming out in my life in ways that I didn't realize the root cause and that I had become an angry kind of person. What I'm trying to illustrate is the importance of forgiveness because if we hold on to this kind of anger, we become angry people yeah, and it comes out in unexpected ways. Yeah. So it's more, it's for you. The forgiveness is for you so that you don't have to be angry. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it, it even goes beyond that too. Like it's for you so that you can live a better life. Yeah. yeah. So that you can have better emotions or more enjoyable. Better, better and worse. Maybe that's the wrong way yeah. to describe it, but a more enjoyable experience. Yeah. This is, it's not anywhere at the same level, but it's a, a conversation. I can remember having this with my wife a while ago and talking about previous partners and wrongs that have been done. And she couldn't quite understand at the time 
why I wasn't angrier. And I had to think about it and thought, I just don't like carrying around that vibration. You can't be angry at someone and not be angry. It's like you carry that with you. I don't want that to be in my life. I don't want that to be part of my interactions with you. I don't want it to be part of my interactions with my kids. That's why I'm not angry. It's not because I approve of what has been done. It's just, I don't want to be that kind of person. There's got to be yeah. another way to deal with it. Yeah. Say that last sentence again. You said that you didn't want it to affect your children. Yeah. I didn't want that vibration. Emotions are like vibrations, right? Everything's got energy. So I think if I'm going to be angry about something and that's going to impact not just, I'm not just directing anger at one particular person. It's part of my being, right? So it's going to impact my children. It's going to impact my other relationships as well. Do I want that? Yeah. And it's tough too, Rod, because like we're not taught how to forgive. Yeah. And when you have like significant traumatic experiences, it makes it even more difficult. So we're not only not taught how to forgive or what forgiveness even is, when it's a traumatic incident, that makes even the method more difficult, like even harder yeah. to let go. Yeah. Yeah. And it's then like it you said, comes in the part, It's in your limbic system. It's like that base, that very lizard part of your brain and there's really no reasoning or logic that you can apply. Yeah. Those deep emotions. Yeah. But you have to be ready to let it go. And uh, doesn't mean that you're condoning whatever it is, the kind of actions that have happened. Doesn't mean you're condoning it, but it can be a tough pill to swallow. When I was, so I was sexually molested at eight years old. And when I confronted that particular resentment toward this person, I had a conversation with my sponsor and it was step four and five in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I had already gone through the previous steps and I said a prayer, but so I talked with my sponsor and oh, man, I have a lot of different thoughts coming that I want to express. Go ahead. Uh, one thing I forgot to mention, you were talking about how forgiveness is for yourself and it is, that's true. But it's also for the world yeah. because you change, like you said, your vibration, which has a ripple effect. So when you're no longer an angry person. That's what the world needs. But so let's, where was I going before that? I made that point because I really just, I wanted to say that. Yeah. Yeah. You were just talking about forgiveness. You're having the conversation with your sponsor, steps four and five. Yes. So. Thank you. I was having a conversation with my sponsor and I told him about the sexual abuse and he said, okay, so first of all, I'm really sorry that happened to you. I said, okay, thank you. And he said, that should never happen to a child. And that's a really, you know, terrible thing to have to endure. Okay, thank you for recognizing that. And then he said, but you've been holding on to this. You're an adult now and you've been holding on to this for 20 years. I said, yeah, been holding on to it for 20 years and never resolved it. And he said, did you ever consider that maybe he had been sexually molested? And I said, no, I never thought about that. He said, well, usually when a kid sexually molests another kid. So this guy that sexually molested me, I believe he was 15, 16, and I was eight. He said, he must've learned that from somewhere. Most people learn that kind of behavior from somewhere. I said, I never thought about that. Here I was addicted to, to opiate medications. I had died 
because I was full of being driven by resentment, fear, anger, etc., low self-esteem, inner chatter. I was being driven by that and the addiction was being fueled by that and I had died and it had been 20 years since this incident happened. And I had never once considered that maybe he had been sexually molested. Not once in 20 years. Okay, yeah, no, I've never considered that. Okay, he said, don't you think that's a little self-centered? I was like, self-centered? I'm the one that was sexually molested. But I realized he had a point because I was all wrapped up in what happened to me, what this person did to me, how I feel about it. I was hurt. I was victimized. And what did that lead to? That led to my opiate addiction. That led to me passing away, being a slave to this substance. But I was being self-centered. Why? Because I was holding on to this resentment without giving one thought, not one thought to what this other person who abused me might have gone through as a child. Never even considered it in 20 years that this guy, maybe he was sexually molested when he was a little child, an innocent little defenseless child, never considered it. So that kind of gave me pause to think for a minute about it. So he said, don't you think that's a little bit self-centered? And I said, I guess maybe. And then he was like, would, if you knew that he had been sexually molested, would that cause you to have a little bit of compassion toward him? And then I imagined that maybe he had been sexually molested. And then I did have a feeling of compassion. And that was the beginning of being able to let it go. Like realizing that I had been holding on to this thing and that it was self-centered gave me a little, I had to overcome myself, get out of my own way, if that makes sense. Yeah. So it was an aha moment, but it was a small, it was a beginning. It wasn't like a gone all of a sudden. It was just, that's how you were able to start. And Yep. And then I had a prayer that I would say every day. We could talk a lot about forgiveness. There's a lot of different aspects to it and the process. I don't know yeah. if you want to spend that, that much time on the show talking about it. I've got about 15 minutes. So yeah, it's really what's valuable to the viewers. So I think it would be valuable. Okay. Let's see. What else could I say about forgiveness? So letting it go. And people say, how do you forgive? How do you forgive someone who sexually molested you? In Alcoholics Anonymous, they teach us that people are sick, like spiritually ill. So seeing the abuser as a sick person and uh, that we can forgive the offense that a person does to us because we realize that they are sick Mm. and that even though they have offended us, that they're really on a spiritual level, a friend somewhere inside of the person is like a pure spirit or spiritual being somewhere, even if we can't see it, there's a pure soul there, but it's been distorted because they are ill, they're sick. So getting in touch with compassion for other people 
And it, like I said before, it's a bitter pill to swallow. Yeah. It's a lot easier to go that person or what they did is demonic in, in a way, for want of a better term, mm-hmm. as opposed to they're ill and sick and yeah, it's a it's way tough. forward. Yeah. Yeah. It's a way forward and it's mm. tough with the kind of world that we live in. Yeah. With all of the terrible atrocities that happen. But mm. I had held on to this thing for 20 years and it was driving my behavior and it had transformed me into an angry person living an angry lifestyle. I needed to find a way to really let it go. I think a lot of people are in this kind of a situation. Now, this doesn't mean that, that his behavior was excused, that I'm excusing his behavior by forgiving him. Mm. That's not what this is about. Yeah. You're just reframing it in a way. It's not his behavior was right. But when you understand that we've come from that, we're, I look at it like this is that we're essentially apes. Like we have, we're animals, spiritual beings. Animals are spiritual beings, but we're essentially animals that have animal ape-like behavior. And you see this kind of thing, domestic abuse, violence and stuff like that in the animal kingdom. Yeah. We have these base instincts. But if you understand that, it becomes a little bit more understandable too, that these Mm. kind of atrocities, manipulations, abuses, that war, violence, all that kind of stuff that that exists in this world. When you look at the animal kingdom and the world of nature, you realize how violent of a place that is. Mm. Now there's love, there's compassion, there's all that good stuff in nature. There's beauty, but it's a violent place too. Yeah. This is where we come from. We are, we come from nature, but we're, I believe that we are evolving into more conscious creators of our own destiny. Yeah. I believe that too. I think that's, that's why I'm doing this. That's why we're having this conversation with you, because if we didn't believe that we're becoming more conscious and loving beings, then what's the point? I think that's where everybody's going and you can either participate in that or not. So yeah. Growing out of that violent kind of nature. Yeah. Yeah. Becoming more conscious. But the reason I went into that diatribe is that it makes the abuses that we endure a little bit more understandable. Yeah. I guess you, you look at it this way, the contribution that you've made since your recovery, the people that you've impacted, that wouldn't have happened unless you'd gone through that. You went through that process. I think it's part of what do you want your life to mean? You want to get to the end of your life and just be angry and just die angry? Mm. Or do you want to be something else? Something I forgot to ask you was a lot of people who I've spoken to after their near death experiences, it opens up these latent abilities that they'd never had before, extrasensory abilities. Have you had any other spiritually transformative experiences or anything? Have you noticed anything like being empathic or anything like that since you've had trained you? Yeah, experienced a lot of different abilities that have awakened and, but I did have a spiritual visitation about a year after the, that near death experience that I described before. Okay. Tell us about that. But the purpose of the 12 steps is to have a spiritual awakening. So 12 step, the 12th step is having had a spiritual awakening, we bring this message to other alcoholics, right? And in the back of the big book, there's an appendix entry about spiritual experiences. 
And Bill Wilson, the creator of Alcoholics Anonymous, had a spiritual type experience, a visitation. They call it a white light experience. But in the back of the big book, it says that not everybody has these kind of white light experiences, that they're usually more gradual kinds of spiritual experiences that happen when you've gone through the 12 steps. But I had one of these white light type experiences. I had been having a kind of a hard time with my recovery and prayed vigilantly for during a morning and about my situation. And I was taking a shower one day and through the ceiling came a light. You know how if you look into a, the distance on a hot day and everything goes like this? Yeah, like a mirage. That's what it was like coming through my ceiling. Okay. And were you, um, were you surprised? You're like, Whoa. I was like, wow, what is that? And I'm in the shower, taking a shower. This comes through the ceiling and all of a sudden I'm penetrated by it. And it was like the most peaceful, loving kind of dynamic energy that I could ever imagine. And it went through every aspect of my being. So when this thing came through the ceiling, I started having all of these thoughts. First of all, I didn't know, was this God? Was this an angel? What is this? And then I could feel the power and the love of this thing. And I started having all of these thoughts like, oh, I'm not worthy to have this experience. I've messed up in life. I've done X, Y, and Z. Why me? It, it didn't care in the slightest. Like it, I felt like it was reading my mind or it knew the thoughts and the feelings that I was having. And it was like it looked past those thoughts and feelings. It looked through them. It penetrated through the thoughts and the feelings, through my body, through every aspect of me. And it had nothing but love and respect. And it was mind-blowing and baffling all at the same time. And I just started crying. I was just like, oh, wow, this is unbelievable. And I just had so much gratitude that this being revealed itself to me. It's a pretty rare thing, isn't it, to feel zero judgment and love regardless. Zero, no. zero judgment. Yeah. And I feel like that kind of awakened something in me where I'm able to speak with people without judgment because people tell me their problems, things that they've gone through, things that they're going through, and they expect a judgment, but I'm able to just, that maybe that's one of the abilities that's awakened is the ability to listen to people and to not judge them whatsoever. Yeah. That's interesting. So I've just got two two more questions for you, Brandon. Oh. Firstly, I'll say, I think you are one of the most brave people I've ever spoken to in my entire life. And I've spoken to a couple now as a result of this work that I'm doing. But I think to face down knowing what you would have to go through to recover, man, that takes some bravery. And to face down your past experiences and go, okay, I'm going to move past those and just live a better life and forget about being angry that that really takes something so speaking about life so what do you consider to be living a good life now it sounds like your life is pretty good but 
What do you consider that that to be the essential parts? Finding finding meaning, leading a meaningful kind of life, which for me it's and my business and helping people and going on shows like yours, Rod, sharing my story and following that and improving, but finding a way to be comfortable and happy, mm. fulfilled in life. And it's not all about That's... striving either. Sometimes you need to strive, but other times it's nice to just relax and be comfortable. Yeah. To enjoy life. And where can people find more about, we'll put in the show notes or the description more about you, but where can people find out more about what you do? Facebook's good. Yep. Brandon Densmore, B-R-A-N-D-E-N. Densmore, D-E-N-S-M-O-R-E. Brandon Densmore. I'm a certified spiritual coach. Okay. I'm also a business consultant. And feel free to reach out if you have any questions about that. It's my passion. I love it. And Facebook is good. You can also reach me at Coach Brandon Densmore at Gmail. Excellent. All right. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate you being open about the questions. I think that the viewers will have gotten a great deal out of this and wish you well. Thank you. My pleasure. Glad to be here. <laughs>